We are very lucky this afternoon to have Adam Howard as our guest. He is the general editor of the Foreign Relations of the United States in the United States State Department. Uh, this is an exceedingly uh, important job uh, because it regulates all of the documents about our foreign policy. Uh, we're also uh, very glad that this afternoon he is going to be speaking on the question of Palestine and the various pressures that were exerted in different ways on the United States President, Harry Truman, and the State Department, and not least on the British government, the Labour government of 1945-51. Uh, so there was a lot of pressure that was being exerted in different ways uh, not least by British labor. And this is a field that Adam has just written on in his book in a very original way, uh, drawing uh, threads of the evidence and argument together that simply hasn't been done before. Then afterwards, we'll ask Bill Brands for a comment and we'll hope to bring Jamie Galbraith into the, uh, uh, the discussion. So Adam, we very much look forward to hearing you on the question of Palestine. Thank you, Roger. I want to thank Roger right off the bat and the University of Texas and the British Studies Program for hosting me. I do have to say one thing, though, before I start so that I can speak freely both during my talk but also during questions and discussion, and that is every view you're going to hear out of my mouth during this is my own, does not represent the U.S. Department of State or the United States government. So undoubtedly, if we go into controversial territory when it comes to the Middle East, I need that disclaimer out on the table. Um, one thing, and I also want to thank Roger, by the way, he, he wrote a very nice endorsement of the book on the back of it, which I very much appreciated. I've known Roger for quite some time. He had served on the Historical Advisory Committee to the State Department's Historian's Office, so it's been a long relationship, and I appreciate him very much hosting me for this talk. Now, I promised that this, for Roger, I promised that I would focus in on the pressure, specifically on the British, so we won't even hear quite as much on the United States and Harry Truman, although I'm happy to talk about that after. There's really two components to this project, one of which is the political pressure brought to bear, which there are many non-state actors that did this during this time in support of Jewish Palestine, later Israel. But I've seen very little work, if any, when it comes to American labor and its pressure that it exerted during this time. It seems the weakening of the American labor movement in the last 30 years, I suspect, has played a role in the lack of attention it's received. The other part of the book, which I won't get into in the talk, is how I argue that the American labor movement and its organizations operate transnationally and really operate, I would argue, their own foreign policy in terms of its support for those Jews in Palestine between the 1920s and the 1950s, and really beyond, excuse me, beyond, but the book stops in the early 1950s. For the purposes of a cheat sheet here, I just put these up. I don't know how well you can see it, but unfortunately, working in government, I hate having to deal with acronyms all the time. And unfortunately, there's no way around it with the various organizations that comprise the American labor movement. I only put up those that I'm going to be focusing in on, the ones that are most relevant. So for example, the American Federation of Labor, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, these are the umbrella federations for which the trade unions individually come under. At this time, they had not yet merged. They merged in 1955, but for the period of this discussion from 1945 to 1948, they were still rivals and they were still very much separate. Underneath are three of the main garment unions I'll be talking about in order of the largest to the smallest. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was uh, led by David Dubinsky during this period. The Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, which was led by Sidney Hillman during this period. 
and the United Hatters Cap and Millinery Workers International Union, which was led by a man named Max Saritsky, lesser known of these Jewish labor leaders who played such a significant role when it came to Palestine. There's also an organization I'll be mentioning a bit called the American Jewish Trade Union Committee for Palestine. This was the organization founded in 1944 that really pushes on the British very hard. And then the American Palestine Committee I'll mention briefly. That's not a labor organization, but significant labor leaders like William Green, the president of the American Federation of Labor at this time, served on it. It was actually composed of leading Christians in the United States in supporting Jewish Palestine. Now, I wanted to start this talk in July 1945. The book goes back to the Balfour Declaration in 1917, but this to me is the most dramatic point to start with and really the most significant when we focus in on the British element. Because July 1945, for those who look back on that victory for the British Labor Party, those are the halcyon days. This is where the national health care system comes from for Britain. But for those who supported a Jewish homeland in Palestine, this was more of the same. They had had the conservative government operate in a way that they found incredibly frustrating beginning in 1939 with the McDonald White Paper, named for Malcolm McDonald, who was the uh, Secretary of State for the Colonies at the time. And this was in response to a rebellion or uprising of Arabs that had taken place over a three-year period between 1936 to 1939. Now, I would contend, and other scholars such as Tom Segev, who wrote in One Palestine Complete on this, that if you look from 1970 or 1920, when the mandate goes into effect in Palestine for Britain, up through the mid-1930s, with some exceptions, the British governments had been, for the most part, living up to the Balfour Declaration in supporting what we call the Yeshuv, the precursor to the Jewish state. However, 1939 is very much a bitter turning point, especially for these American labor leaders I'll be talking about, because it comes right at the time that Britain is about to go to war with Germany, hence why there's going to be this white paper which calls for the severe limitation of Jewish emigration to Palestine between 1939 and 1944. And after 1944, the complete cessation of all immigration of Jews to Palestine. And for American labor leaders, Palestine to this point had been a great practical refuge for those Jews trying to escape Europe. Even before the Nazis in the 1920s, they supported Palestine as a place for Jewish, uh, those Jews persecuted under the pogroms in Eastern Europe. So for, to have this happen right at this moment was something that was incredibly frustrating for the American labor movement. They had hoped, based on 30 years of consistent pledges from the British Labor Party, that had promised to fulfill the Balfour Declaration, that finally, now that the conservatives were out of power, the American labor movement, which had been biting its tongue for the previous several years with the conservatives in power, could finally count on a change in policy and having an abrogation of this white paper. The Labor Party proved unwilling, however. Something that actually David Ben-Gurion, a side note, noted in 1942, he said, don't assume all these pledges that we've been hearing about mean anything. And David Ben-Gurion at this time, before he becomes prime minister of what will become the state of Israel, was in charge of the Jewish agency, the precursor to that state. And he said, this is not a promissory note, what we're getting. So be careful once they do, if they do take power. But for American labor leaders, they really believed this was something that was going to happen. And their unwillingness to change their policy left many of these American labor leaders feeling betrayed, especially because, excuse me, because they felt they had done so much to assist the British Labor Party during World War II. For example, in 1940, during Britain's desperate plight and that of the British labor movement generally, the American Federation, Federation of Labor had persuaded leaders to form the American Labor Committee to aid British labor. You had AFL Vice President Matthew Wall acting as chairman of this group. You had William Green, the president of the AFL at this time, serving as an honorary chairman. And you also had several Jewish labor leaders from these unions serving on the executive board of this organization. 
This committee sought large financial donations from the AFL unions, organized local committees, charged them with adopting resolutions supporting British labor through the war, sold subscriptions for books published by the committee to workers and friends. It also arranged for dances, picnics, sent donated clothing to Britain, and encouraged women's auxiliaries to form sewing and knitting circles to make needed clothing for the British. Yet, despite deeds such as these, which offered essential assistance to British civilians and the British war effort generally, American labor leaders remained stymied in their attempts to influence the Labor Party during the post-war years. They even early on tried to shame the Labor Party into repealing this McDonald White Paper when, and this is the American Jewish Trade Union Committee for Palestine, publishes a pamphlet in 1945 entitled British Labor and Zionism. And in this pamphlet, it includes 25 years of Labor Party pledges, as well as its leaders' statements endorsing a Jewish homeland in Palestine, as well as the free immigration of European Jews. In the opening page, the committee's writers ask, quote, are these pledges and this record to be forgotten now? Through publications such as these, this committee hoped to compel the Labor Party to stick to nearly three decades of pro-Palestine sentiments. And if you look at the record of the British Labor Party, it's consistent. You will not find changes along the way. There are some within the British Labor Party who wanted to try to water down sometimes the language. Walter Citrine was one of these. But for the most part, they come through in very positive terms when it comes to supporting a Jewish homeland in Palestine, as well as allowing for open immigration of Jews to Palestine. Accordingly, American trade unionists from this time forward denounced the British government's decision to place what they saw as the material interests of Britain and this government, oil for the most part, and that Palestinian Jews and Europe's dispossessed Jewish refugees were left to suffer for it. It's worth noting that some within the American labor movement cynically supported repealing this white paper though, since mass immigration of Jewish refugees to Palestine would mean no need for them to come to the United States. And this is something that British officials took note of with great frustration. And I'll go a little bit further with this because if you look at the late 19th and early 20th centuries, American labor unions had traditionally opposed immigration due to concerns over increased job competition. Since Palestine offered an alternative location for European Jewish immigration, labor leaders opposed to allowing more Jews into the United States championed Palestine as the solution. It was a win-win for everybody. Additionally, several congressmen who objected to adjusting two decade-old immigration restrictions in the United States, which had prevented numbers, large numbers of Jews from emigrating to the United States, advocated Palestine as the best solution to the Jewish refugee crisis. Thus, most American labor leaders and a majority of congressmen bound the McDonnell White Paper the foil with which to focus their energy for the following years. And so again, this is a good example where you can see how ultimately people like Foreign Minister Ernest Bevan are getting very frustrated because they see how things line up for American politicians who see Palestine as a solution and that puts more pressure on the British government to respond between 1945 and 1948. In addition to recruiting congressional allies in their campaign to influence US and British policy, labor leaders also sought the aid of garment manufacturers. So it wasn't limited just to the rank and file unionists, but they also cooperated with garment manufacturers, which is worth noting, most of them were Jewish. And many of those manufacturers joined the chorus of trade unionists demanding open immigration in a Jewish state in Palestine. One such company cabled President Truman on September 27th to complain, and this is 1945, to complain bitterly of the continued British policy blocking Jewish immigration to Palestine. He claimed that it had, quote, no basis in justice or decency. And he urged that the United States insist that Great Britain fulfill her obligations. This was the beginning of many cables that would come at President Truman to apply pressure on Prime Minister Attlee and his cabinet. 
Although not always coordinated with their protests, manufacturers and trade union leaders consistently communicated their concerns over Palestine. Now to press their case, the American Jewish Trade Union Committee for Palestine believed personal meetings with British Labour Party officials would make some difference in changing British attitudes towards Jewish immigration, as well as the need for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Now, this is a good example where there were many non-state actors involved in pressuring Britain, but few would get the ear and the access that these labor leaders would get. And so Max Zeritsky, the president of the Hat -Cap Mil United Hat Cap Millinery Workers International Union, goes to London as an observer to the wild, ostensibly to, the, to observe the World Zionist Congress, but his main mission was to urge the British Labor Party to abrogate the white paper and support Palestine as a free and democratic Jewish commonwealth. Zeritsky traveled to England that month and met with several leaders of the Labor Party, such as Howard Lasky, Herbert Morrison, and Walter Strine, as well as representatives from the Foreign Office and Colonial Offices. And Zeritsky presented these leaders with a declaration <coughs> featuring over 800 signatures from the most influential trade union leaders in the United States. He wasn't just showing up alone, he was showing up with the American labor movement behind him. And these signatures on this document demanded increased Jewish emigration in a national home in Palestine. Zeritsky also provided letters individually from AFL President William Green and the CIO president at this time, Philip Murray, as well as CIO Secretary Treasurer James B. Carey. These were the heavyweights of the American labor movement in this period. And they stressed that his plea, Zeritsky's plea, had their backing and the support of the entire organized labor movement in America. In the end, Zeritsky's meetings with these officials led him to believe Labor Party leaders would not change their policy. By the end of his three-week stay, he lamented leaving England, quote, a disappointed, disillusioned man. Zeritsky's instincts proved accurate. In September 1945, newspapers both in Britain and the United States shocked American labor leaders with reports that the Labor Party intended to continue the white paper immigration policy. In late September, Zeritsky expressed his dismay to AFL President William Green, remarking, quote, it is inconceivable that men at the helm of a great labor movement should, without compunction, renege on pledges made by them in all solemnity. In a letter to Philip Murray, Zeritsky referred to the Labor Party decision as, quote, a stunning blow. He found it incredible that men holding responsible positions in the labor movement, as well as in the government of a great nation, should find it possible to dispose of a problem affecting the very lives of tens of thousands of human beings and the future of an ancient people in such a callous, indifferent, and inhuman manner. Despite the disappointment, Zeritsky indicated there was hope, telling Murray, the president of the CIO, that during his visit to England, he learned that the opinions and sentiments of the American labor movement carry a great deal of weight with the British. Accordingly, Zeritsky urged both Murray and Green to send messages to the Labor Party leadership, which they both did promptly. By October of 1945, American Zionists realized the new British government would be difficult to move on the Palestine issue. Baruch Zuckerman of the World Jewish Congress expressed his concern to Max Zeritsky, lamenting, quote, that we are going to have a difficult struggle with our labor friends in England. He noted that Zeritsky and Jewish labor leadership will have to take, quote, upon yourselves a considerable part of that struggle. Jewish labor leadership, though, was not afraid to heed those calls and throughout the fall continued its campaign to convince the Labor Party's leadership to alter British government policy. That month, the president of the International Lady Garment Worker Union, David Dubinsky, formerly entered the fire stone, storm with a telegram to Prime Minister Clement Attlee. I should note that prior to 1945, Dubinsky had remained ambivalent, as many other Jews in the leadership in these unions, but also the rank and file when it came to the issue of a Jewish homeland. 
He wholeheartedly supported Jewish immigration to Palestine during the war years, and he admired Histadrut, the General Federation of Jewish Workers in Palestine, which play a big role in this book, because for so many of these labor leaders and the rank and file, they see Histadrut as the backbone of what is becoming this Jewish homeland, and as such, they see this very progressive socialist vision in Palestine coming to bear that they want to help make come to reality. So this all appeals to his both his practical nature of helping Jews get out from under the Nazis, but also the fact that it would provide, uh, or at least would appeal to his socialist sensibilities to have some sort of development of a Jewish homeland that was going to have a socialist backbone. In this telegram, Dubinsky attacked the white paper as, quote, an arbitrary and cruel document. But interestingly, he carefully avoided any mention of a Jewish state when he wrote, we appeal to your government for the creation of necessary machinery that would secure the extension and growth of a Jewish national community in Palestine. The addition of Dubinsky's powerful voice, though, to the pro-Palestine lo lobby, despite his reticence of the Jewish home or state issue, placed even greater pressure on British policymakers. Dubinsky of the ILGW and Sidney Hillman, for those not familiar with this history, were major players in the New Deal. They had close connections while Franklin Roosevelt was alive. There's an apocryphal story that during the 1944 presidential campaign, Franklin Roosevelt said, clear it was Sidney, meaning anything that had to be approved, make sure Sidney Hillman has his okay on it. That's how important Hillman was to Roosevelt at that time. <laughs> also in October of 45, AFL bodies exerted increased political pressure when its executive council urged the Labor Party to immediately assist Jewish refugees, quote, whose plight has not received proper consideration since victory. The council castigated Britain for failing to implement the Balfour Declaration within a reasonable time, and with the result that untold suffering could have been avoided and many thousands of Jewish lives could have been spared. With a Labor Party government only recently in place, the council commented, we know that our friends in Great Britain do not wish to prolong, on this, to prolong or repeat the tragic mistakes of previous British governments on this issue. October also marked the beginning of protests against British policy by both Canadian and British labor organizations. M.J. Coldwell, he was the national leader of Cooperative Commonwealth uh, Confederation of Canadian, or the Canadian Federation of Farm, Labor, and Socialist Groups, cabled Attlee urging the repeal of the white paper and due consideration given increased immigration to Palestine immediately. That same day, P. Johnson, the secretary of the British National Union of Tailors and Garment Workers, forwarded a resolution to Foreign Minister Ernest Bevan, noting the union's dismay over reports that the Labour government considered continuing this white paper policy. The Trades and Labour Congress of Canada also joined the voices of protest demanding a repeal of the white paper. So through this, all this fall of 1945, you're getting the Commonwealth Britain itself and the United States in all their labor movements pressuring this government. In November, the rhetoric aimed at the Labor Party intensified again as William Green, the president of the AFL, spoke at the International Christian Conference for Palestine in Washington, D.C. This two-day conference featured Christian leaders from 29 countries who demanded unrestricted Jewish immigration to Palestine and again, the establishment of a Jewish homeland as the Balfour Declaration seemingly had called for. Green noted at this that the AFL Executive Council had communicated its hope that the newly elected Labor Party would support Jewish aspirations with regard to this matter. He reiterated that AFL leaders were certain British Labor Party officials did not wish to prolong or repeat tragic mistakes of previous British governments. Green admitted that the Council had thus far received no response from the British Labor Party or the British Labor government, and it was growing disturbed by rumors that the Labor Party planned to continue the white paper policy indefinitely. The Labor Party's plan to maintain policies restricting Jewish immigration to Palestine placed a great burden on U.S. President Harry Truman. 
In early 1945, after being subjected to intense pressure on the Jewish immigration issue, Truman announced his desire to see 100,000 Jew Jewish refugees allowed entry into Palestine. He continued with this call through the summer of 1945. Prime Minister Attlee resisted this request, though, and during that fall, Attlee called instead for the creation of a joint Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry to study solutions to the problem. Truman agreed to this, despite Zionist concerns that this was merely a British stalling tactic. In his boldest language to date on the issue, William Green called out President Truman, stating that the American Federation of Labor will not accept further postponement of the action that is so urgently needed. Any attempt to prolong the unbearable status quo by instituting new investigations of the plight of the Jews in Europe and the possibilities of emigration to countries other than Palestine will be regarded by American labor as a cowardly evasion of the issue. He asked, why investigate all over again? Is there any doubt about the facts? And he concluded exclaiming, we assist upon action now. We will not be satisfied unless we get action now. Green worked on these Zionist issues, not only as the president of the AFL, but as a leader of the American Palestine Committee. The American Palestine Committee referred to itself as a vehicle for the expression of the sympathy and goodwill of Christian America for the movement to reestablish the Jewish national home in Palestine. Green served on the executive council along with the CIO's president, Philip Murray, and US polit political leaders such as Representative Claude Pepper, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, and Senator Wagner, Robert Wagner. In March 1944, this committee had sponsored the National Conference on Palestine, which included Christian organizations working with the AFL and the CIO. Similarly, Phil Philip Murray, the president of the CIO, served on the advisory committee of Americans for Haganah Incorporated, an organization seeking support for the Jewish army in Palestine, known as the Haganah, as well as the establishment of a Jewish home in Palestine. These various outlets provided forums for both labor leaders to express their viewpoints on various issues surrounding the debate over a state in Palestine. And if you're familiar with some of the people I've mentioned, you may recognize a kind of liberal consensus building around this notion that there is an unjust injustice being done by the British government and that Jews in Palestine deserve, based on what happened in World War II, to be part of the solution of the post-war order. And so this is something that comes through from a lot of organizations for example, individuals like Frieda Kirchway, editor of The Nation, or the philosopher Reinhold Niebuhr. These are people who also will back the labor movement's push on Palestine. Now, American labor's admiration for Histadrut, the General Federation of Jewish Workers in Palestine, played a large role in its commitment to a Jewish homeland in Palestine, as I alluded to earlier. During the immediate post-war years, evidence of British harassment of Histadrut leaders and members affronted American labor leaders. The first of these episodes occurred on November 25th and November 26, 1945, when British soldiers became involved in a violent altercation with Jewish settlers after ostensibly searching for illegal weapons in the town of Givat Chaim, in the towns of Givat Chaim, Shefaim, and Rishpon. Histadru contended that the British were actually looking for illegal Jewish immigrants. The violence caused by these searches led to the death of eight Jews and the wounding of 63 others, in addition to 65 British soldiers who were wounded and 16 British police officers. Histadrut leadership reported British soldiers beating Jewish civilians in Palestine with rifle butts and bayonets and exposing them to tear gas. Green and Murray cabled Attlee for the second time in two months, appealing for a halt to the violence and the abrogation of the white paper. These incidents left Jewish labor leaders bitter and they continued the harangment of labor party leaders. 
On December 5th, impatient leaders sent a declaration to Prime Minister Attlee demanding, again, he fulfill immediately, quote, your obligations to the Jewish people. The declaration warned that, quote, patience, even with close friends, must come to an end one day. In an unusually severe attack on British imperial policy, the leadership described British actions as, quote, the brutal and treacherous practices of British colonial rule. CIO leaders and organizations also came to Histadrut's aid. Although the AFL had traditionally backed Histadrut during the previous quarter century, the CIA was a relatively new organization, first created in 1935, and its leaders had not yet at this point spoken out vocally in their commitment to Histadrut or a Jewish homeland, as had their AFL counterparts. Now again, this was due in part to CIO's members' more militant commitment to socialism and inclination to reject nationalist movements, and Zionists seemed to them a nationalist movement. But again, this changed during World War II, as most trade unionists began to prioritize the rescue of European Jewry over any ideological opposition to Zionism or a Jewish state. CIA voices grew louder in April 1946, when the founder of the CIA, uh, co-founder, of the CIO and the president of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, Sidney Hillman, urged the British government to, quote, abrogate the infamous white paper of its Tory predecessor and immediately out allow entry of 100,000 Jewish refugees to Palestine. Hillman had recently returned from Germany as an American delegate on a mission for the World Federation of Trade Unions. He bemoaned the state of Jewish refugees he visited in displacement camps, the euphemistic term for those survivors of the concentration camps and the death camps who had been placed by the British in these displacement camps. He said, quote, almost without exception, they were living from day to day with a single thought, a single hope to emigrate to Palestine. One hope for Americans seeking the admission of Jewish refugees into Palestine lay in the 1946 report of the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry. As I mentioned, this was created in the fall of 1945 by both Clement Attlee and Harry Truman and composed of a combination of American and British officials. They investigated the various problems between Jews and Arabs in Palestine and sought an equitable solution. On April 20th of 1946, the committee published its findings, which included the call for the immediate admission of 100,000 Jewish refugees to Palestine. Now, this was something Harry Truman wanted the year before. British officials balked at the committee's recommendation, arguing that violent Jewish and Arab reactions against the British government in Palestine made it impossible to admit so many Jewish refugees. From their perspective, this was just impractical because of what it would spark among the Arabs and the counter-reaction there would be from the Jews in Palestine. On May 24th of 1946, Abe Tuvum of the American Zionist Emergency Council contacted Max Zeritsky regarding British reluctance to enact the committee's recommendation. He lamented, quote, our State Department has literally made a football of President Truman's splendid decision on this subject and is kicking it around unmercifully. Two of them implored Zeritsky to have William Green and Philip Murray, again presidents of the AFL and CIO, send cables to American labor leaders. Zeritsky made the request of Green and Green exhorted AFL leaders to contact President Truman, to contact Pre uh, Secretary of State Burns and the State Department in general, about the need to implement the committee's call for the admission of 100,000 Jewish refugees to Palestine. These efforts continued to fail, however, and the American Jewish Trade Union Committee for Palestine, led by Max Zeritsky, grew increasingly despondent. On June 18th of 1946, an irate Zeritsky wrote Sir Walter Citrine, chairman of the British Trade Union Congress, and Philip Noel Baker, chairman of the British Labor Party, repudiating the Labor Party's connection to American labor. Zerissi expressed, quote, deep sense of disillusionment and our resolve to combat the current Palestine policy of your government with every weapon at our disposal. He also warned 
Not until your government has redeemed the good name and integrity of British labor can you continue to regard us as the champions of your party in the United States. Zariski's attacks and those of these other American labor leaders definitely caught the attention of the British Foreign Office. During World War II, foreign office officials worried about American public opinion on the Palestine issue, and American labor leaders' opinions especially concerned them. The Foreign Office recognized labor leaders such as William Green and Philip Murray as very important players in the American polity, and it sought to address their concerns. Despite receiving numerous telegrams from Jews and non-Jews from around the world relating to the Palestine issue, British officials gave American labor leaders' protests or inquiries explicit attention. As early as 1943, the Foreign Office monitored activities of the American labor movement with regard to its support of Histadrut and other Jewish activities in Palestine. It accomplished this primarily through reading American press reports or, on occasion, sending agents to labor meetings in the United States. Through these means, foreign, officials, foreign Office officials hoped to keep their finger on the pulse of the American labor movement with regard to Palestine. Typically, they judged the relevance of American labor actions by the power associated with the organization, the AFL, the CIO, the amalgamating clothing workers and the International Ladies Garment Workers Unions were high up on the list. Yes, there was also the United Auto Workers and the United Mine Workers, other powerful unions. Those unions fell in line, though, on the Palestine issue when the AFL spoke and when the CIO spoke. And of course, the AFL and CIO spoke because they were getting the big push from Jewish labor leadership in these garment unions, who were themselves vice presidents in the case of David Dubinsky of the AFL, and in the case of Sidney Hillman, he was a co-founder of the CIO. Now, between 1945 and 1946, the Foreign Office noticed the increasingly hostile language that I've already referenced, employed in American labor leaders' telegrams, letters, public statements. And much of the hostility arose from obstacles the British government continued to employ in blocking Jewish immigration to Palestine. In the spring and summer of 1946, American labor leaders focused much of their frustration on the reluctance of the British to enforce that recommendation from that Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry and the call for the 100,000 Jews to enter Palestine. On May 11th of 1946, Zariski wrote Howard Lasky, the chairman of the Executive Committee for the British Labor Party, reporting, quote, trade union leaders here are deeply perturbed over recent reports of labor government reaction following report of the Anglo-American Commission. As each week passed, with the British failing to implement the committee's recommendations, the frustrations of Jewish labor leaders escalated. On May 28th, the Trade Union Division of the National Committee for Labor Palestine, a relatively new organization, distributed letters to various unions echoing the demand, as before, for 100,000 Jews to be allowed to enter Palestine, and exclaiming, quote, the voice of American labor must be heard loudly and effectively in the interest of justice and freedom for our suffering people. On June 10th, in an unusually indignant speech, David Dubinsky, or in this case a cable, David Dubinsky cabled J Joseph Breslau, who at that time was the chairman of the trade union division of the National Committee for Labor Palestine, and complained that the committee's recommendation on immigration was being strangled by inaction. Delays, alibis, and procrastinations, Dubinsky bemoaned, have halted the realization of the commission's plan of action. While thousands of our uprooted people are dying each month in these camps, crushed between the millstones of heartless political intrigue and moves. Dubinsky emphasized a growing belief among trade union leaders that, quote, the initiative in this demand must continue to be pressed by our labor movement. He encouraged labor leaders to demand unceasingly that our government does not relax in practical cooperation to carry out the commission's recommendation. Dubinsky also asserted that American labor must go out to the British labor movement with a ringing demand that they impress upon their government the utter justice of our cause. 
Now, Foreign Minister Ernest Bevan exacerbated the situation in June when he complained of agitation in the United States, and particularly in New York, for 100,000 Jews to be brought to Palestine. He depicted these complaints as emanating from self-interested New York Jews who, quote, did not want too many Jews in New York. Bevan added fuel to the fire when he blamed Jewish settlers for instigating British soldiers in Palestine. Bevan charged, quote, you are creating another phase of anti-Semitic feeling in the British Army because of what has occurred recently in Palestine. And there had been a number of terrorist attacks by the right-wing extremists within the Jewish polity, namely the Irgun, which was led by Menachem Begum, who later became Prime Minister of Israel, and also Zvai uh, Lumi, which is known as, uh, or Lehi, which is known more popularly in the United States as the Stern Gang. There had been the hanging of two British sergeants. There was the attack on the Camp David Hotel. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. And so this was on Bevan's mind when he made this statement. Within days, American labor erupted over these comments, though. The American Jewish Trade Union Com Committee for Palestine cabled British Labor Party leaders denouncing Bevan for his vulgar anti-Semitic statement. The New York CIO Council adopted a resolution condemning Bevan's outrageous statements and, quote, the callous indifference of the British government to the needs and welfare of the tragic remnant of the Jewish people of Europe. The International Executive Board of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union reproached Bevan in the severest terms for comments unbecoming a trade unionist. The board also resolved that the British government should open Palestine to Jewish immigration and allow Jewish settlers to arm themselves in self-defense against Arab attacks. Canadian locals of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, I've been speaking about this all in an American context, but of course they are an international union because they have Canadian locals. The Canadian locals of the ILGW joined in excoriating Bevan for his remarks, reading with dismay the slur on the American people made by the foreign minister. By June, late June, tension between American and British labor leaders exacerbated when British soldiers commenced a three-day operation against members of Histadrut and the Jewish agency. Again, the Jewish agency is the precursor of what will become the Israeli government. Histadrut's institutions, including its central offices and its workers' bank, suffered damage. <coughs> British soldiers killed five Jews and reportedly searched and damaged 30 settlements. The British government accused Jewish settlers of harboring illegal weapons, but their forceful reaction distressed American labor leaders. On July 1, William Green and David Dubinsky cabled Prime Minister Attlee to express their disgust. And on July 3rd, Sidney Hillman and Phil Murray made their last joint act before Hillman's fatal heart attack in the fall of 1946 by sending a telegram to Attlee expressing their, quote, deep abhorrence of the shocking attacks and protesting British general policy in Palestine. In an example of international labor unity in protesting the attacks, British labor organizations joined their American and Canadian counterparts in voicing objection to British actions towards Jewish settlements in Palestine. In July, the London and Leeds districts of the National Union of Tailors and Garment Workers remonstrated against the, quote, brutal attacks, calling for the punishment of those involved, the release of those arrested, and the opening of Palestine again to 100,000 Jewish immigrants. Also, the Union of Mine Workers and Workers Circle Friendly Society joined the call for amnesty of Jewish labor leaders in Palestine. With British trade unions voicing their protests, the Labor Party endured pressure from its own members as well as those of their American and Canadian colleagues. The Jewish Labor Committee, I haven't mentioned this organization yet, formed during the time when the Nazis rose to power, formed in 1934, to be one voice for Jewish labor against Nazism. The organization was very much divided between those socialists who did not want to engage on the Palestine issue, again because they saw it as a nationalist distraction from socialist values, and that the Jewish Labor Committee should be saving Jewish trade unions in Europe. 
But by the end of the war, it seemed hopeless that these trade unions in Europe could ever be resuscitated. And therefore, the Jewish Labor Committee, by 1947, and even in 1946, started to show signs that it was going to embrace the calls for Palestine as a Jewish homeland. The chairman of the Jewish Labor Committee, Committee Adolf Held, sent a proposal to Prime Minister Attlee and to Foreign Minister Bevin requesting they receive a committee comprised of a few American labor leaders sent to discuss events in Palestine. The British turned down Held's request, but the initiation by the Jew Jewish Labor Committee illustrated its new activist stance on Palestine. Adolf Held and Dubinsky also sent a telegram to Prime Minister Attlee concerning reports that the British planned to deport Jewish refugees who had arrived illegally in Haifa. Held and Dubinsky argued that such a move would not only be disastrous to the persons involved who have undergone the most brutal suffering under Hitlerism, but would also generate an unfavorable impression upon public opinion, which has been restrained by recent events in Palestine. Like the AFL and CIO, the Foreign Office considered the Jewish Labor Committee, quote, of sufficient importance to note a reply. Such pressure from an important entity forced British officials to be responsive. Among individual Jewish Labor Committee leaders, among them David Dubinsky, they arose to play an increasingly prominent role in gaining Jewish refugees access to Palestine and in stating the need for a Jewish homeland. And in fact, that August, Dubinsky met with President Truman to discuss the refugee situation and the homeland issue. In November, both he and the AFL Vice President Matthew Wall attained an audience with for, uh, Foreign Minister Bevan in New York to discuss the Jewish immigration problem and the need for a Jewish homeland. Now, neither talk triggered a change in US or British policy at that time, but the escalating involvement of high-profile American labor leaders provided pro-Palestinian activists with increasing access to the most important policymakers both in the United States and Britain. Both during the summer and the fall of 1946, not even the most prominent American labor officials were going to change British policy in any substantial way. In February 1947, as the situation in Palestine deteriorated, though, and more violence broke out between Jewish settlers and British soldiers, British authorities considered declaring martial law. Max Zeritsky warned that the imposition of martial law would lead to the further deterioration of goodwill towards British labor government. He contacted seven leading figures within the American labor leader, considering all of the main leaders I've talked about already, imploring them to contact not only Ernest Bevan, but also the Ambassador Lord Inverchapel to call their attention to the dangers inherent in the proposed action for martial law. And he got them all to send telegrams. The British government decided against martial law in this case. Although this publicity did not lead to dramatic policy changes, such as repeal of the white paper, it did indicate that the American labor leadership was having some impact on British policy at the local level in Palestine. Histadrut and the Jewish agency's leadership recognized that British officials would not act with impunity against them when AFL and CIO leaders consistently harangued British government leaders over their actions. This provided Histadrut and the Jewish agency with a measure of flexibility in their operations that neither would have experienced otherwise. Moreover, this continual pressure exhausted British officials. Suffering from attacks within Palestine, as well as persistent lobbying from abroad, Ernest Bevan announced in February 1947 the British government's decision to turn the Palestine issue over to the United Nations. British control of Palestine was incredibly costly to the post-war budget, given the need to maintain 100,000 British soldiers in Palestine. But just as significantly, tremendous pressure had been brought to bear by a myriad of non-state actors. It's not just American labor, but this is the story that I don't think has been told, and hence why I wanted to write the book, because of these non-state actors, American labor organizations have received little attention on the issue and were involved with the United States government 
and were involved, as I mentioned earlier, in applying what I would call their own foreign policy when it came to building up the institutions within Palestine, spending money on colonization, building communal settlements, building housing projects for workers in Palestine, building technical institutes. So on multiple fronts, the American labor movement was operating. And if you buy my book, you'll get to find out all these different angles that they took outside of pressure on the British government. Thank you. Thank you.